0: I'll invite you all to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are coming to the end of Philippians chapter 3. The last two weeks we have been going through this third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this morning we come to the final section of the chapter. Philippians chapter 3 verses 17 through 21. I ask you all, please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. And this is God's holy word for us, His people. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example of you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's holy and almighty word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word today. Father, we give you thanks for your word and we ask that you would bless the reading. The mere reading of your scriptures has power. And we ask you to bless this reading. And now, even more, we ask that you bless the preaching of your word. May the proclamation be sound and faithful to what you have revealed May I fade away and may you stand forth and be all we see. May your voice be all we hear. You be our teacher today. Write this truth upon our hearts. Conform us a little bit more this morning into the image of Christ and get great glory for yourself as we worship you through the hearing and preaching of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And You may be seated. <clears throat> So for the last two weeks, we have been, we've been looking at this short mini-series just for the month of February. And the series has been called Discipleship by Faith. In the previous series, we looked at the, what I call the anatomy of discipleship. What are the essential elements or components, the vital organs of being a Christian disciple... And the sequel to that is this series, Discipleship by Faith. In that series, we saw this is what discipleship is. In this series, we're talking about how do we get on doing it. Discipleship is done by faith. So, just to catch, I know we have several visitors, just, just, just to catch you up with where we've been. In the first week, we said discipleship is a gift. Discipleship, number one, is a gift. God makes us His disciples in our justification when he makes us right with him in our justification by his grace alone through faith alone and we pursue discipleship from the gospel as justified sinners we've been made perfectly right with God in Christ but in ourselves we still battle with sin we are justified sinners that's where discipleship has to start Discipleship is the gift of becoming a follower of Christ. God does that for us by grace through faith. Second, this was last week, we said discipleship isn't just a gift. Discipleship has a goal. The goal of discipleship is sanctification. Sanctification, which simply means dying More and more to our own personal sin and growing more and more in our personal holiness. And in discipleship, since it has a goal, we press on towards our goal. We press on, we strive forward for the goal to win what Paul calls a heavenly prize. Seeking full conformity into the image of Christ. When we do this as justified sinners, Paul says we have to forget our past. Forget what lies behind, he says. It's been covered by the blood of Christ. Forget our past and strive forward. Always forward, looking ahead to the glorious destiny God has called us to. Discipleship is what helps us cultivate this mature Christian mindset and what keeps us from backsliding and backtracking in our walk with Him. That's where we've been. That brings us to today. This morning we take up the last paragraph in Philippians 3 as we consider the connection between discipleship and glorification. Glorification. If justification is about the gift of discipleship, and if sanctification is about the goal of discipleship, then, as we'll see today, glorification is about the gain of discipleship. Once we have been justified, discipleship begins. And sanctification is the process or the progress that we make in our discipleship towards that goal that God has called us to. And then glorification is what happens when our discipleship is finally complete, when sanctification is finally finished, when we've finally reached the goal. In verse 14, Paul says, He is pressing towards that goal so he can get the prize. Look at verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This morning we want to know, what is that prize? And what's it going to take to get it? we'll take those in reverse order. First, we'll talk about what's it take to get it, and we'll conclude with what is it. So let's begin. In verses 13 and 14, Paul gives us this fundamental principle of the Christian life that I just read. We must forget the past and press on toward the goal. And in verse 17, first verse of our passage today, he tells us that we must do this Together. We do not run this race alone. We do not practice discipleship in isolation. If we do not run together, we will fall short of the goal and miss the prize. Look at verse 17. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now here, Paul gives us three directions for how to pursue the prize in our discipleship. Three directions. Number one, discipleship should be a family activity. You get that from the very first word. How does he address us when he gives us verse 17? What does he say? He calls us brothers. Brothers, join in imitating me. Brothers, join in. That's what he's telling us to do. And this implies that we are all siblings. And that's really what brothers here means. It's just a generic word in Greek. Literally, it does mean brothers, but it's an inclusive word. And it means brothers, sisters, all of us fellow siblings together. That's what it means. We're all siblings, we're all fellow believers, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and therefore we must band together as a family and commit to one another. He says, brothers, join in. Now back in the the letter to Romans, in chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that, here's the purpose, in order that he, the Son, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is the firstborn Son of God among many Brothers, many siblings, many fellow sons and daughters of God. Christ is the natural Son of God. He's the Son of God by nature. God didn't have to do anything to Jesus to make Him His Son. He's always been God's Son. Way before the incarnation, way before the virgin birth in Bethlehem, that same person who's Jesus in the Gospels was always that same person in eternity past. He's the natural Son of God. Son of God by nature. You and I, <laughs> we're not eternal. Right? We're not the natural sons and daughters of God. How do you become a son of God? A daughter of God? A child of God? It's through what the Bible calls adoption. That Jesus came so that what He is by nature, you can become by grace. Now, you don't become God right, the way he is, but you get to participate in that father-son relationship that he has with the father. Jesus has this eternal relationship with God as father and son. And grace, his grace to you is that he invites you in to share in that infinite, eternal relationship to be loved by God the way he is. To know God the way He does. And everything Jesus does for you when He lives and He dies and He rises and He's interceding for you, you know what He's doing? He's getting all the barriers out of the way so you can have that relationship with God. That's what salvation is ultimately about. It's knowing God. Sharing in that fellowship. And here Paul, just by calling us brothers, is conjuring up in the background this huge theology that... God has made us His children in Christ and with Christ. He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And if He's the firstborn, we're all called to be like Him, to become in our practice, in our lives, what He's like. We've been adopted into God's family, so we share in His status. That's like justification, being right with God. Adoption is sharing in the status of being a full child of God. But then you're called to be conformed, to actually start looking like a child of God, not just being one on paper. And here he says, brothers, join in this process of being like Jesus and growing in your discipleship and pressing towards the goal. It's a family activity. You can't do it outside the family. Discipleship, Christian, discipleship is about cultivating our family resemblance to Jesus. Brothers, sisters, fellow child of God, join in. Don't exclude yourself. You need to join in. Don't forsake the family. Don't abandon what God has put together. A family called the church. That's the first direction he gives us. Brothers, join in. Discipleship should be a family activity. Number two. Second direction. Imitate the godly characters in the Bible. Imitate the godly characters in the Bible. Look what he says. Brothers, join in. Join in what? Brothers, join in imitating me. Brothers, join in imitating me. Paul says, look at me. Look at how I live for Jesus and copy what you see me doing. Imitate my practice. Walk the way you see me walk. Watch me follow Jesus, and you follow me. Now, the Philippians could do that face-to-face. They could do that one-on-one. They knew Paul. Paul came to their church, to their town, planted their church. They could just look at Paul and remember what he did when he was there and do what they saw him doing. What are we supposed to do? I, I can't see Paul obeying Jesus. I can't see Paul praying. I can't see Paul doing anything with my eyes. Because now, Paul's not in front of me. Paul's in the Bible. <laughs> and that's why I say, imitate the godly characters in the Bible. You see, that's where we watch Jesus. That's where we watch Paul living a Christian life. We see him talking about it. We watch him doing it. We see Jesus preach and teach and we watch him live. And we can look at the godly characters in the Bible and we can imitate how they walk And how they live. Scripture was given to us for many, many reasons. Lots of reasons God has for giving us a Bible. But one of those reasons is to supply us with tons and tons of examples of what godliness looks like in real life. God gave us the Bible so that we would start living like the people in the Bible. It's, it's one thing to watch Paul and think, oh man, what a godly Christian. Good for him. It's one thing to just see it happening and think, oh, that's a nice example. And just leave it in the Bible. Leave it on the page and then close the book and go away like, like it has no relevance to you but he gave us these examples so that we could see here's what it looks like to trust the promises of God here's what it looks like to obey the law of God here's what it looks like to have a relationship with God wow watch look at what the work of God that was done in these people's lives watch how they follow the Lord that's how I'm supposed to be people who believe the promises of God and receive the power of God in their lives i watch them do this in the bible i'm supposed to think hey he's the same God those are the same promises. This is for me. I can do this. The same Holy Spirit's here to help me do that. Open the Bible and imitate what you see. Paul says, join in imitating me. Now, the reason Paul says imitate me is not because he's self-righteous and full of himself and thinks he's such an awesome person. And You know, I'm a better Christian than all of you, so just watch what I do. And, and try to keep up, right? That's not what he's saying. If, if Paul was saying that, like, it would be pretty, I mean, right? We would think, wow, what a prideful jerk. <laughs> you know, he shouldn't be in the Bible. Look at this, All right? Well, Paul says, imitate me a few times in the, in the scriptures, in his letters, but in another letter, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, imitate me, As I imitate Christ. And that's the point. Paul wants you to see Jesus in him and go be like that. Don't just look at how good and holy Paul is, because who's Paul? Nobody. Watch how I followed you. Look at the Jesus in me and copy that. That's what he's saying. That's why he can say in chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What you've seen of Christ in me, in my words, in my actions, how I respond when I get sinned against, how I deal with suffering and loss and opposition and persecution... I'm not perfect, but Christ by his grace has made me what I am. And so you can see something of Jesus in me and you need to go and do that. And not just Paul, scour the scriptures and follow the godly examples. Follow the godly characters in the Bible. And I say characters because they're characters in a book, but I mean they're actual moral character. Follow the good character that you see in the followers of God. Discipleship should be a family activity, number one. Number two, imitate the godly characters in the Bible. Third direction in verse 17. Watch and learn from one another. And that's the title of this whole first point. Watch and learn from one another. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's where you come in. Don't just follow Paul. Don't just follow the leader. He says, keep your eye. Fix your gaze on one another. And watch those who follow that example right there in your church. And the reason he gives us this direction is because of what's in verse 18. He says, for or because... Which explains why he just said what he said in verse 17. Keep your eye on those who walk according to our example because, verse, uh, verse 18, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Keep your eyes on those who follow our example because there's lots of people who go the other direction who are enemies, not the friends. Of Christ, not the followers, but the rebels against Christ. Mark and avoid, mark and avoid those who fit the description of verse 18 and keep your eyes on one another. Chapter 4, verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's so important because too many times, test this in your own experience, too many times we look at each other and it's critical. I can't believe so-and-so wore that to church this week. Did you hear about such and such? I have a prayer request. And it's ten minutes of gossip. <laughs> and it's negative and it's nitpicky and it's critical. And it's like, can you believe? I can't believe so and so did this. Did you hear about that? And it's, ooh, I don't, I don't. Mm. And it's just, it's, it's finger wagging. It's looking down the nose. And it's just this critical spirit that just watches for the negative And is quick to find that little thing to gripe about. Too often, that's how we watch each other. And we know that. It makes us self-conscious and we think, oh, I wonder who was talking about me at church this time. <laughs> and if it happens enough, it just eats away at the, at the fellowship, at the unity of the body. And sometimes it's humorous to think about it because it's like, yeah, that's kind of how we are. And, and it is a little bit humorous, but if it keeps up and it gets too deep and it gets too, it's just acid and it will eat away at the unity of the body of Christ. Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, and then don't forget chapter 4, verse 8. Look for what is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Just be on the lookout for that. How different would our fellowship be if all we ever did was Look for what is excellent in you and praise that. And say, I saw you being excellent for Christ. Keep going. I see how lovely that reaction was when that person misspoke to you. Beautiful. Looked like Jesus to me. Praise God. Keep going. And we just did that. And we said these things to each other. And we encouraged those glorious things we see of Jesus in each other. We're watching God work in his people. I don't mean dismiss the big sins like, okay, if someone does something awful, it's like, oh, well, it's okay because they're okay in this area. I'm not saying ignore sin when you get sinned against or things like that. I'm saying don't be on the lookout for that. Those things will come. Okay, be on the lookout for what is pure and lovely and glorious and commendable. Watch each other and imitate those godly examples that we set for each other instead of criticizing. And the last thing I want to say about this point before we move to the next next section. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. And that means two things. It means if you hang out with the wrong crowd, if you hang out with those who have bad character, they tend to pull your character down. So mark and avoid bad company because it will ruin your character. That's the first thing it means. The second thing it means is stop being bad company. You don't be bad company that pulls down someone else's character. It's It's a warning to us all to cultivate good character, to encourage and lift each other up, Join in, brothers, in imitating me. Walk according to the example because there are so many examples of those who don't out in the world. We have to band together and watch and learn from each other. That's the first point of today's sermon. Second point. Paul, why do we need to band together like this? Okay, I hear you. It's a... You're telling us to do this. Why? Why does Paul underline the necessity of pursuing the prize and pressing on towards the goal together, like he does in verse 17? Well, again, he tells us in verse 18, there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he explains further what he means in verse 19. He says, Speaking of the enemies of Christ, their end is destruction. That's where they're heading. Destruction. Their God is their belly. I love that. Right? What's, what do they worship? It's right here. What do I want? What am I hungry for? What do I crave? What's my belly growling for? Morally, spiritually, relationally? My appetites, what I want is what I'm going to go for, it's what I'm going to get. Their God is their belly. They serve their stomachs. And they glory in their shame. The things that just ought to make them blush in horror is what they brag about and they boast in it. Things that ought to be shameful, they celebrate and lift up and want you to join them with their minds set on earthly things. Their minds are set on earthly things. And the most important thing on earth for them is what they see in the mirror. They serve themselves, walking as enemies of Christ. This world is not your friend. The enemies of the cross have us surrounded and the course of this world will sweep us away if we do not keep our eyes fixed on heavenly rather than earthly things. Paul reminds us of this strikingly in Colossians 3, 1-4. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There are many who have their minds on what is here below, living for this world And if we're not careful, we will be taken away. If we drift and coast, the culture and the world is drifting hellward to destruction outside of Christ. That's not where we want to go. The church is an island in enemy territory in this fallen world. And so we must stick together and walk together. Look at verse 20. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven. They have their minds on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it helps to have a little context here. Who's Paul writing this to? He's writing it to the Philippians. Philippi, the city of Philippi, was in, is in Greece. But Philippi was founded as a colony of the Roman Empire so that citizens of Rome and retired soldiers could flock there. It's in Greece. It's a Roman city. And the people of Philippi, the citizens of that city, are citizens of Rome in Greece. Paul is taking that idea that all of them value very highly. I'm a Roman citizen. Yes, I'm in Greece. Yes, I'm in Philippi. I am a citizen of Rome in this foreign land. And Paul is beautifully drawing on that idea, that sense of citizenship and identity they have as Romans in a foreign land. And he says, guys, your citizenship isn't in Rome. It's in heaven. You are citizens of heaven on earth. Not just citizens of Rome in Greece. We are the Christian colony in this world. We have a Lord and it isn't Caesar. He says in verse 20, From heaven, where our citizenship is, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When the emperor visited your town, that was a big deal. These were Roman citizens and when Caesar came to town, you lined the streets, you couldn't wait for the arrival of the emperor because he's your king, not these puppets who are here in Philippi. No, no. Caesar is our Lord and when he comes to town, that's a big deal. Here he says, your Lord is not Caesar, your home is not Rome. You are citizens of heaven, Christ is Lord and from heaven you await your savior. Not Caesar, but Jesus. He's calling us to be the Christian colony committed to Jesus in the midst of a dark world. Citizens of a kingdom in a foreign country. Kingdom of light surrounded by the kingdom of darkness. He's reminding us that we're in a fight and that we have work to do. We're pressing towards that goal. But we have to remember where we are, and who we are, and who those are around us. We are the Christian colony. Earlier in the letter, in chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, he says, Do all things without grumbling. Ouch. (laughs) Do all things without complaining so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, as stars, holding fast to the word of life. That's where we are. We're citizens of heaven and we're supposed to shine like the stars of heaven down here in the dark Paul earlier in Philippians says in chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word manner of life is one word in Greek, and it's the verb form of the word for citizenship. The Greek word for citizenship is a noun, and when you make that into a verb, it's the one he's the word he uses in verse 27 for manner of life. And it means live out your citizenship. Enact your citizen status in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. You are engaged in a conflict as the Christian colony. Discipleship is warfare, spiritual warfare. Sanctification is combat. It is a fight to the finish line as we strive ahead to the goal. That's why we need each other. We are in this colony as the family of God together. And we face resistance at every turn final point this morning. When the fight is over, and when we reach that goal, and win that prize, what is that prize? Last verse of the chapter, verse 21. He said, our citizenship's in heaven, We're waiting for our Savior to come from heaven down here to earth to be with us, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. One day Jesus will arrive. The wait will be over. And He will be And we will be transfigured from our lowly body into his glorious body, just like he was in the Gospels. We have white as the colors of the pyramids today because it's not just Trail Life Sunday. It's also Transfiguration Sunday, where in the story of the life of Christ, we pause to remember his transfiguration. Let me read you Matthew chapter 17. The account of how Jesus was transfigured. Verses 1 and 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. What happened to Jesus on that mountain for a few moments with three of his disciples, he will do for all of us when he returns. That our lowly body will be transformed, transfigured, altered, morphed into his glorious body. The light and life of eternity will flood your, not just your soul, but your body, banishing not just all your remaining sin, thank God, but banishing your very mortality, your susceptibility to sickness, pain, decay, and death. We're talking about resurrection from the dead, not just going off to float in heaven as a disembodied wisp, but to be con- dig up the dirt, get up out of the coffin raised. Empty tombs everywhere, just like Jesus' empty tomb 2,000 years ago. He will come back and He will not just redeem your soul, Christian, He will redeem your very body. It's coming out because He lives. You too will live. And what happened to Jesus on that mountain, just to Him, will happen to the whole world as He brings about new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, transfigured, flooded with the light and life of eternity. No more sickness, pain, sorrow, regret, sin, loss. All will be made new. Resurrection. This is glorification where we are made fully into the glorified people of God in a glorified world. The prize is finally getting what Paul longed for way back in chapter 3 verse 11. He says, so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul was pressing for, resurrection from the dead. The prize is finally getting verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Perfection, fully conformed to the image of Jesus, is the prize. You'll finally have it, Christian. The prize is finally getting what Paul longed for in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, garbage in order that I may gain Christ. When you're finally there, you'll finally be raised up and you'll finally have that perfection in Christ that sanctification is trying to build towards you'll finally have perfect conformity to Jesus and perfect fellowship with Him. That's the gain of discipleship. As Paul said in chapter 1 of the letter, verse 21, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Being with Christ is far better. This is the end result of sanctification. This is what makes glorification so glorious. So as we close, think with me on these last couple of of thoughts. What do you prize today, Christian? Is this the prize you want? Is this the goal you are striving for? Is this the direction you're going? Where have you fixed your eyes? What goal are you pursuing? If we really are the Christian colony and we really are the family of God, what can you do to be more connected and engaged in this Christian colony? You and I are disciples marching on to Zion. This is what discipleship by faith looks like. And we all want to get there together. Because if we don't go together, we're not going to make it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. And I thank you for the penetrating truth of the scriptures to cut through to the heart and teach us what we need to know. To show us which way we ought to go. And I pray that you would give us power to overcome our resistance, to overcome the drift of the world around us, to cling to you and to band together and to be the people of God you've called us to be and to recognize that the only way we're going to make it to the end is because we go together and the only hope that we have that any of us will make it to the end and attain to that resurrection is because of the cross. Nothing but the cross that guarantees That the gospel is true, that these promises that you will keep us faithful to the end will not fail us. It's only because of Christ. It's all through grace, and so we have to do it by faith. Our discipleship, justification, sanctification, glorification, this whole process is all a gift by grace. It's all by faith. And because you give us your Holy Spirit, we are able to become fully alive to what you've called us to. And we are able to be fully engaged and committed to strive forward, not to earn anything, but because it's already been earned for us, already done. The promises are there. Help us to cling to them and to walk in your power. Lord, help us all to make it to the end. And may none of us be left behind. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.